0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here this day. And it is um, our last Sunday where you're going to see me in a Hawaiian shirt, okay? We are finishing up the series called Kipona Aloha, which is Hawaiian for deep love. Um, And we are looking and finishing up now the letter of 1 John. We're in chapter 5 today, and that's going to be exciting. Next week, we start a new series. We're going to go from the letter of 1 John into the Gospel of John, and the series called Identity, Discovering Who We Are in Christ Through the Gospel of John. And that, um, I don't know if you realize this, but um, the Gospel of John has many, like, case studies, you could call them. That is um, different interactions of different individuals from all different backgrounds with Jesus. So we're gonna look at Nathaniel, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and many others. And in them, each one of them is looking for and answering the question or trying to figure out who am I, what am I about, what does my life mean? Which is a huge issue For our generation and our time, social identities today are made up of all sorts of different things people are kind of grabbing after, from um, race, culture, nationality, region, work, sexuality. And we're putting it all together and trying to figure it out. And I think in the Gospel of John, what we're going to find out is this is no new phenomenon. That these individuals, too, were struggling with those basic issues of who they are. But what we find in the Bible is not something that you just do like by looking inside or trying to figure it out how you're feeling today, but it's you find out and discover the joy of who you are when you find whose you are, okay? Here we go, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 to 21, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In some ways, um, it's been ten weeks. Do you realize we've been doing this study for the First John for ten weeks? And some of you are like, "Yes, we're finally finished." Um, but in some ways, we're kind of back at the beginning. The end of the letter. Paul uh, John himself has kind of a circular semitic. That's kind of Middle Eastern style of writing. And he kind of spins around different ideas and takes it from different angles and looks at it this way and that way. So it's kind of like um, how you kind of, how, how in the uh, Hebrew scriptures it talks about meditating on God's word. It's not something you just kind of read and you get over, but you think about it, you read it again, You speak it kind of quietly to yourself. You come back to it. You look at it from another angle. John is kind of doing that in his letter here. And he's kind of taking us around some of these things. And he uses very simple words with profoundly deep theology behind it. Not always easy to grasp. The words are easy to understand, but it's like, what is he really getting at? So today, we come against one of these words. And that is when he says that we are are born of God, or born again. You heard born again before? And you might kind of well, ooh, I don't want to be called born again. You know those born again people. Have you ever? um, So this started back in um, uh, 1976, well before some of you were born, or even, right? It was called by Newsweek the year of the evangelical or born again because it was Jimmy Carter who became president and called himself a born again Christian. And everybody goes like, what's that? right? And they were trying to figure it out. And from that point on, the word born again, as well as the word evangelical, has been gone through a lot of different transitions and stuff. Sociologists look at this. Politicians look at these words. It's used as a demographic category in this way or that way. And I think if you're not confused by what these terms mean, um, I'd be surprised because I'm confused as to, I have to ask the, what do you mean by you know, evangelical today. Because, for instance, yesterday I was um, at a meeting for Mission Haiti in Orlando, and one of the leaders of the meeting um, flew in from uh, Denver, Colorado, where she, she, she works at a church. She said, I'm the only Christian in my neighborhood. And here, sadly, Christian used to mean, oh, it was one of those people that just go to church and do their own thing. Now the word Christian for a lot of people means, oh, you're mean, you're vicious, you're judgmental. So she has to deal with that kind of background. I think the word born again, even for Christians, we're kind of like, ooh, I don't know if I want that, because sociologists kind of say a born again Christian or a person born again is someone who's had, who's been down and out, Who's kind of gone through the gutter, who may have had a hedonistic lifestyle, whatever, but, and then they had some intense turnaround, emotional experience, where now they've flipped from being hedonist to being virtuous, from being, um, uh, you know, uh, breaking all the rules to now keeping all the rules and all that type of stuff. And um, that's not what the term actually means, okay? It's really not about you. <laughs> even though it happens to you, it's not about you. It's about what God does for you. This is a very, very important term. So we're going to try to look at what the Bible actually says <laughs> on this matter. It comes up here in 1 John chapter 5, and it occurs in the Gospel of John more than and in his letters than anywhere else. Okay? So these are the three things I think we're going to learn from this passage that we looked at. Why we must all be born again, what that change looks like, and how it happens. I mean, how do you get there, right? So why must we be born again? And you might not, it's like, I don't want to be born again. You know, being born the first time, well, first of all, I was there, but I don't remember it, do you? But from what I can tell from the birth of my two children, it's a very traumatic experience. And it's not something any child coming into this world is like, oh yeah, that was a breeze. And, and, and no and no mother usually is going like, ooh, let's do that again. <laughs> like, in five minutes, let's do it again. <laughs> Haley, you've probably forgotten what, what Johnny's birth was like, right? So this next one, it's like, and thank God, I think, Moms tend to forget the pain and agony of that childbirth so that they might actually have another, right? Yeah, yeah. And my wife just says epidural. That's what her word is, epidural. It worked great. Why go with a Volkswagen when you can have a Lexus, (laughs) right? That's kind of how she talks. Anyway, so, um, but born again we all need it. First of all, you got here through birth. You're going to get into the kingdom of God through another birth. Okay, so there are three terms actually used in this text um, of um, that Paul's referring to people. So verse in 13, he says that they are people who have eternal life from God. The next time, in verse 18, they are people born of God. And then the third time, it's he calls the people he's addressing, children. And at first you might go like, oh, I guess these are three different categories of people. No, they're actually the same category. And that has deep implications of what it means to be born again. So anyone who has eternal life has been born again and is a child of God. You know, in a sense, the word born-again Christian is repetitive. There is no other type. Okay? If you are a child of God, that's where you, now the sociological understanding is, well, there are born again Christians and then there's Christians, and that is not the case according to the Bible, okay? Being born again is not about having a feeling or an experience, you may have had a feeling, you may have had an experience, but just because you did doesn't mean everyone else who's a Christian has had to go through this intense emotional experience to get there. Um, I've actually had a few different Encounters, I would say, over my lifetime. They're not every day. You know, I, and, but different times where the closeness of God just profoundly affected me. Okay? And probably you have had a number of those. Sometimes they're in the Deepest valley, like our last song talked about. Sometimes they are on the highest of heights. Sometimes they're just every day, and then all of a sudden something hits you. A Bible verse, a message, um, an individual situation, a song, and you go like, wow. Wow. But other times, it might just be kind of a gradual situation that changes who and how you're thinking about yourself and moving you forward. So we're not going to kind of say, well, you have to know exactly the day, the hour, the moment, the place. You know, My faith is not in my experiences. My faith is in my God who gives me experiences. My faith is not in my faith. My faith is in the God who gives me faith. Do you understand? So we're going to uh, look at this. Um, Probably the best understanding of this term though, the first time it's used is in the Gospel of John, chapter three, you know where we have John 3, 16, right? But before that, it's the encounter that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. And um, we will, in our next series, have just a whole Sunday just on who he is and his identity crisis that he's undergoing with Jesus. But I want you to understand a little something. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it says, in the Gospel of John at night, because he was afraid of the others and what they would think of him. He was a man of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the pyramid, the top of the pyramid scheme in Israel. He's in the top, 70 people in the entire nation of millions of the most spiritual, the most scholarly, the most moral, the most, um, the role model citizen. He probably had most of the Hebrew scriptures memorized or he understood them completely and thoroughly as much as he could. And he lived a lifestyle that any of us would go like, wow, I wish, right? And so he had all the knowledge, all the information, and he comes to Jesus at night, and he tells Jesus, you know, we know, I know that you must be doing whatever you're doing from God because nobody could do what you're doing without God blessing it. And Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you, Nicodemus. That's so nice of you. I really appreciate coming from you. That he goes, no, he just cuts to the chase. He's blunt. Whenever you see the words truly, truly in the Bible, Jesus is kind of saying, Listen up, be blunt, <laughs> bump, right in your face. And this is an instance. He says in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus right away is like, huh? Jesus is telling him, you, you, you think you can see, you can't see. You don't see the kingdom of God. You don't really know what's going on. you got all this information. you got all this stuff but you don't really see the kingdom of God. You gotta be born again. And Nicodemus right away is going like, now how am I gonna do that? I've been keeping the 613 commandments of the Torah all my life since I was a child. Now let's endow Jesus, you're adding just one more. I've gotta now be born again. How am I gonna get back into And he actually asked Jesus, how do you do that? How do you get back in your mom's womb so that you can, and it's like Jesus is going like, You really don't get it, do you? He doesn't quite get the metaphor. He's still thinking in physicality, but he's also getting the metaphor in a sense, and Jesus is saying it's impossible. You can't do it. There's no technique for you. First of all, do you realize the first time you were born, you didn't birth yourself, did you, Kathy? No, no. I just, I'm sorry, it just reminds me of uh, Gone with the Wind. I ain't about birthing no babies, right? It's lying, sorry. But um, you can't um, be born, um, uh, you don't birth yourself. You are born. You are birthed, right? Born again is the same. You can't born again yourself. You are born again. It is done to you. It's not something you do. This is this whole teaching from the beginning to the end. And by the way, uh, could somebody open the door because uh, our bass player went outside to make a phone call and needs to try to get back in? <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. So. Um, It's something that's done to you. This is what the teaching in the Bible throughout is about grace. God does something to you. Like I said, being born again is not about you. It's really about what God does for you because he knows you need a fresh start, a new life, a whole beginning. This is where um, Paul talks about it himself. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the next line will come up later, but it's all this is from God. You didn't do this. You can't do this. You need a fresh start, but you can't make the fresh start yourself. And I, most of society, we are in a self-help can do. I'm going to get re- And notice, then being born again is not about getting religion, because Nicodemus already had it. It's not about keeping the rules because Nicodemus was already keeping them. It's not about being smart and before you were dumb because Nicodemus was probably one of the most brilliant scholars of his day. Okay? It's about what God does for you and that you receive it. And we'll talk about that. So what does this look like when, okay, And John is basically talking about three different aspects of what it means in your life in practical terms. And that is you get a new mind, you get a new heart, and you have some new behavior. So the new mind comes up here. It's not about facts. It's not about information. It's about a change, a perspective, an opening up of a a frame. It's like, oh, now I get it. I knew all this before, but now it kind of falls to you. The penny drops. So John says this in 1 John 20 and we know the Son of God has come and has given us, and here's the word, understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. Um, for example, um, you may uh, have a friend who comes to you and says, Oh, my goodness. I just heard the most incredible singer here in our area. She's playing at this venue, um, her voice, I mean she has such a range and she can hit almost any note and I'm just like, I, I was just astonished at what I was hearing and how wonderful it was. You got, and, you, and you believe your friend, you know, you trust him, you heard the information. But then you go and hear her sing yourself personally. Now it goes from the knowledge you had before to the understanding of what it means that her voice is incredible. You are overwhelmed by it. You are touched by it. From knowing about God, now you know God is love because you have received that love. It's gone from, oh yeah, God is love to God loves me. From knowing that God is good, you have experienced his goodness because you know God has forgiven you for your mistakes, your sins, your background. Religion may extend your knowledge of what you already know. You can get religious and it doesn't change. But this experience or this event or this situation is when you hear God's word and it's like, yes, yes. You receive it as the gift. It's not just about, but it means that you have a whole new awareness. You understand personally what it means. Just like you saw the singer, you heard the voice, and you responded in amazement. Secondly, the new heart. Now this comes up, he doesn't use the word new heart in this passage, but I think that's what it's about. By the way, the word heart in the Bible is not about your feelings okay? It's not about your feeling. It's really about your, it's your control center of who you are. It's really about your identity more than anything else. And so it's how you are moved or controlled or the decisions that you make is what your heart is, according to the Bible. So in 1 John 5, John says this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You might go like, ooh, that's kind of like us, them, and well, I don't Notice it doesn't say, look, we're the good people and they're the bad people. That's not what he's saying. I think Christians get into trouble when they start doing that. Because guess what? We're the bad people and they're the bad people. (laughs) It's the reality. You know, I'm in the same group as they are. What he is saying is, we're now the children of God once we were this way. And he is saying, they're not bad, but they are controlled by the evil one. This is really an identity statement. You see, John says, we are the children of God. As I said before, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God has changed our status and made us new and given us this gift, and so we are no longer controlled by the evil one. Klein Snodgrass talks about it this way in one of his books. He says, Christ is not an accessory to your identity, as if you were choosing an option for a car. He takes over identity so that everything else becomes an accessory, which is precisely what Jesus as Lord means. So, what happens is you get a whole new heart, a whole new center to who you are and your identity, and then you are no longer controlled by other things that used to be more central to who you are. Do you realize people are choosing all sorts of things as a center of their identity? For a number of people, especially in our Western American society, it's work. You know, how good of a job I do, and I'm, you know, the first thing when I introduce myself to someone is, hi, I'm John, and I, right? And it's usually my job. And so often, for men especially, our work is so central to who we are that when we do retire, all of a sudden it's like, who am I? I'm no longer my job. I don't understand. Right? You were never your job. You may have done a good job, your job was part of you, but it wasn't central to who you are. Okay, But when you do make something like that your center, and there are people in our society that do, when your job becomes central to who you are, then all of a sudden, if the job's going well, you feel great. And if the job's not going well, you feel terrible. And if, perchance, you get a terrible review, or your business goes south, or you lose your job, you're not just, dev- you are like felt like you've been stripped of your entire identity and you're bare naked and like there's nothing to hold on to. That is what we're talking about when he's saying the evil one is control, because you are controlled by what is central to you. Now it could be your job, it could be your grade point average, it could be your knowledge, it could be your um, your popularity, it could be your family, it could be another person. it could be any if anything that is penultimate, anything that is finite, anything that is good but not God, taking the place of God in your life, it can become demonic and destructive. And that's how you can get controlled by All of those things. And you can see how people today are controlled by fears and anxieties. They're controlled by what people say of them and what they think of themselves. Um, Timothy Keller, I heard him talk about uh, a situation when he was younger in his ministry. He's now retired. And uh, when he was younger in his ministry, he had a counseling situation with a young woman who... um, who had tried to achieve the apex of her field as a violinist, and she hadn't made it. And it wasn't so bad about the violin, but she had really, her parents had really wanted her to do that, and they were a little bit, but they had said to her, that's okay, honey. You know, we love you. It's not about that. But she felt like she had displeased or did not fully give joy to her parents. She actually was not just depressed. She was actually in a mental hospital facility because she couldn't handle the disappointment she had caused her parents. And she knew, she told Timothy Keller, I know my parents have forgiven me and I know God has forgiven me, but I cannot forgive myself. Have you ever heard people say, I can't forgive myself? They're holding on to something at the center of their identity that ain't God at that point in time, because God has already forgiven them. Do you understand what I'm saying? So her problem was not, hey, pleasing your parents, that's good, but it isn't God. Pleasing your parents is a wonderful thing, but you can't live for their pleasure okay? You cannot live for their pleasure. It can become destructive, and for her, she was being controlled by it so that she could not handle it. And what probably I think Timothy later in life, because he didn't know what to do in this situation, he would want to go back and tell her, you know what? You've got an idol going on here. It's not, oh, you know, just you've elevated yourself above what your opinion of yourself above what God has already said of you. You care more about pleasing your parents than the fact that God has found his pleasure in you already. You are a child of God. So John in this gospel uh, in this letter is saying we're all controlled by something. Whatever is central to your identity. And what happens with a person who is a Christian is you've got a new center. Jesus Christ. And the unconditional love of God that you are his beloved no matter what. Unconditionally, irreducibly, um, unalterably, nothing. And that's why Paul could say nothing in all creation. Nothing will ever change that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So, yeah, sure, Christians, we, 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 um, I've got all sorts of, you know, my identity as an instructor, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as, you know, uh, <laughs> my age, my, um, you know, my body image, my nationality, my background, where I come from. All those things are part of my identity, but they are no longer the central defining event of my life. Thirdly, the new behavior. And this comes up, and I just basically bring this up to try to, there's a passage in here you might read and you go like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't like this. In 1 John 5, 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And at first glance, you go like, wait a minute. You mean Christians don't sin? Well, I keep sinning. Am I not a Christian? You've got to understand what John's getting at. First of all, that would contradict what he says in 1 John chapter 1. He says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And understanding a little more of how the English sometimes translates the Greek, you might think, oh, Christians don't sin anymore. No. Christians do not continue in sin, even though you continue to sin. Okay? that changes in your behavior are starting to happen. It's not perfect. Hopefully, I've become a little more patient over the years. Hopefully, I don't have as many fears and anxieties. Hopefully, I have more compassion and understanding. Hopefully, God has been working out who I am. My identity is starting to work out in how I live and what it looks like to others. So I'm not continuing in the sin, but I'm continuing to sin every day. You can ask anyone in my family. So how does this all happen? What's it really like? Nicodemus asked that question, and you might, this is where I think John ends his letter, and he says this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in the, his son jesus christ he is the true god and eternal life little children keep yourselves from idols in other words you can could never be born again if jesus had not been born he was born into the manger so that you could be born again into the kingdom he was born into the dirt so that you could be raised into righteousness he was he took on actually the entire evil identity of this world the rebellion of this world every false image this world has and he was stripped of everything upon that cross even his very life he pours out so that you would be he is showing you that you are the treasure of his heart You were the one thing that he wanted, the only thing. His own life was not important to him compared to you. He gives it all up so that you might treasure him in your heart. And the rebirth comes when you see what Jesus has done for you. And you receive it as what it is, the gift of God. Instead of just, oh yeah, God may be love or is probably love, that God loves me. He is for me. I like what uh, Miroslav Volf says in one of his books. He says, the Bible presumes a centered self, more precisely, a wrongly centered self. That's what we've been talking about, that needs to be decentered by being nailed to a cross. And so when we look at the cross, We're nailed there. Our whole way of doing things is nailed there. And we're giving a new life. We're giving the life of Jesus himself. He is our eternal life. He gives us his very life. That's, by the way, what baptism celebrates. It celebrates the new life. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, in the early centuries, um, there there was a period of time in a number of churches that were formed, very humble churches, that they dug... A cross shaped baptistry so that there was no, so that this whole understanding of what uh, Paul says everyone who is baptized into Christ is baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him in baptism so that just as Christ was raised to life, so we too may walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 and 4. And so that's, they even shaped it that way so that you understand you are being identified. So it's not that you have Christ in that it isn't that Christ is in me, but that I am placed into Christ. I am immersed into Christ. I am united with Christ. I am identified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that Christ is for me. So you are within Christ. You are placed. You look it up. You could probably find hundreds of passages in the New Testament that talk about being in Christ. Very few that talk about Christ in you. Because that's the most important thing: is that you've been placed into Jesus Christ. You are a new creation. You have been given. Anyone who is in Christ—that's how that passage even says—is a new creation. I think Charlotte Elliott um, wrote a hymn in which I think she's getting at this point, and this is going to be our pr- part of our prayer today as we end the message. So will you just pray with me as we pray this together? It'll come up on your screen, and then I will continue. Oh, Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more near, more intimately nigh than e'en the sweetest earthly tie. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us a whole new self, a new birth, that we don't do it to ourselves, but it happens when we see how you were born for us, that you died for us, you took our place, and that we are united with you in baptism. We are in you, Lord Jesus, and that makes all the difference. Help us to see you as the bright reality of our lives, that all the other things that would try to control us and move us in one direction or another, all our fears and anxieties, all the things that we desire or want, or look for or expect, Lord, pale in comparison to the gift of your grace, the gift that you give yourself to us that you've treasured us above all else and that you are our treasure. We thank you, Lord Jesus, this week for the students who are going, starting to come here to FGCU. We pray for this semester. We pray for our area and for our state right now as we are facing um, the, the COVID pandemic again We pray, Lord, for your protection over the members of this church, but also, Lord, for the opportunities to share your truth and your love in all sorts of situations. We pray that you alleviate our fears and that we can trust in you and that you give us wisdom, Lord, to know how to live in this world right now. We thank you, Lord, this week that Myrna, as she has undergone um, her surgery, that you've protected her throughout and brought her to the other side rejoicing. We lift up to you those who, Lord, need your care right now. For Christopher, who uh, hopefully soon will hear news about his uh, radiation treatments and other um, situations for his brain tumor. For Kai, Lord, out in California at such a young age of eight, Lord, undergoing chemo. We pray, Lord, that you would be working in their lives and that you would draw them closer to you through all the events of their lives. We pray right now for Mission Haiti, Lord, as we have partnered with them before and as Haiti has just undergone another earthquake, Lord God. We pray for the Christians in Haiti that we know, for Lafon, our field director, and others. We pray, Lord God, that your protection would be on them and that you would give them both the passion, the energy, the wisdom to know how to minister in a difficult time. We pray, Lord, as the tropical storms and other events that are coming, Lord, that you would keep people safe and draw them closer to you. Lord God, for um, our campus ministry, for our church this fall, Lord, for a f- for a kind of a new start. We pray, Lord, that you would just be working through all these things, so that it's not about our programs, it's not about us, but it's about you and your kingdom. Through us, through other ministries in Southwest Florida, Lord, that you draw more and more people to you. All this we lift up to this day. We thank you, Lord, that you've been here with us during this hour. We pray for those who are online and have been watching, Lord, that they are members, too, with us. Bless them, Lord God, and work in their lives and draw them to uh, be able to come in person when they can, Lord God. All this we lift up to you this day, Lord, and as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, forgive us, renew us, and lead us according to your will and ways. And as we also, Lord, prepare to offer ourselves and our tithes and offerings, Lord, that you would bless them and use them for your kingdom's sake. All this we pray in Jesus' name.